One Michael Jordan is worth 20 journeyman players. Same with coding. That fantastic coder is not just 10% better than the next best person. He's 10 times better than the next best person. Hey, everyone. I'm Mark Randolph, and welcome to That Will Never Work. On this podcast, I speak with folks who are at every stage of building their own business, whether they're leaping from side hustle to self-employed or are already generating revenue and ready to level up. My goal is to draw out their biggest challenges and then, using a combination of advice, encouragement, and tough love, nudge them just a little closer to realizing their dreams. While I'm known for co-founding Netflix and serving as its first CEO, my career as an entrepreneur spans four decades. Netflix was actually my fifth startup, and since leaving there, I've had the opportunity to work with scores of early-stage companies and mentor aspiring entrepreneurs from all over the world. Along the way, I've picked up hundreds of tips, tricks, and secrets, which I'm eager to share with my listeners. Helping others move their ideas forward has become my life's passion. So if you've been told that will never work as much as I have, you've come to the right place. Together, we'll prove the naysayers wrong. A lot of the time, our episodes are focused on beginnings a brand new idea, a launch, a pivot. But today's guest is concerned with something's end. For the past several years, Jason's startup has been providing doctors in South Africa with the co-working space they need to establish their medical practices. Think we work for doctors. But a few months ago, Jason left the day-to-day operations of his company and now holds an oversight position on the board. It's a transition that brings about a lot of new questions for Jason. How do I stay involved? How do I stay out of the way? What do I leave behind? And of course, what's next? Well, hey, Jason, welcome to That Will Never Work. I'm excited to chat with you, partly because you're doing something in a very different part of the world than where I live, and partly because I think you're at an interesting stage in your business and struggling with a problem that I think a lot of entrepreneurs would actually like to struggle with. But enough of the mystery. Why don't you start us off, Jason, by tell us a little bit about what problem it was you were trying to solve And then what you did, and then maybe you can kind of gracefully segue your way into what it is you might want to chat about. Perfect. Thanks so much, Mark. Uh, It's a pleasure to be on. It's an honor to be on. And I hope you can understand my accent from sunny South Africa over here. So basically, I studied medicine in South Africa. And over here, there's a large discrepancy between the wealthy and the poor, which we largely refer to as the private sector and the public sector. Now, all doctors are trained in the public sector in this country, servicing the lesser privileged. And then once you graduate, a lot of practitioners want to go into the private sector where they can generate more affluent lifestyles and larger incomes. However, it's incredibly difficult to get into the private sector in this country, certainly in the central business districts, because of four major problems. The first one is upfront capital. To establish your medical rooms, it can cost millions and millions of rands. The second one is operating capital. So if you're a new doctor, you might not have that many patients. Or if you're a part-time doctor, you might not have that many hours to work. So you never actually cover your overhead costs. The third problem is just business knowledge. Your medical school training gives you no sort of business or MBA type knowledge that you need for a very 
ruthless medical business sector in this private sector in this country. And then finally, there's actually competitive coalitions. So if you're a surgeon, you need a hospital and a theater and you need a casualty to find your patients. And the practitioners that are established at the large hospitals don't want another doctor on their turf. So they block you through perverse mechanisms. So effectively, what we did was we established a co-working space model for doctors. So we put up the brick and mortar. Doctors can come in. They have the assets they need, the equipment they need, the staff they need. But they only use it on a sort of a, a rental basis for the hours they require it. So it's a medical business in a box. And without going into too much detail, we get around all of those barriers to entry that I've referred to. So I've got a quick question. Certainly, I have let's see, uh, zero knowledge about how the South African medical system operates. But for example, I know it's very common here that for a new doctor starting out, they wouldn't try and open up their own practice. They would just join an existing practice. Is that not something which happens in your market? Yes and no. So the answer is yes, but for the lucky ones. But unfortunately, if you look at our doctor per capita ratios in this country, we don't have enough doctors for the population. So the public sector is training more and more doctors to address the per capita ratio and gap, but there's not actually enough public positions and certainly not through the more high density areas for those posts to be filled. So basically, like you said, the pressure is them to then go, I don't want to keep being a public doctor. There's tons and tons of them. I want one of these limited private slots. But of course, the ones who are already in the private spots are saying, I'm not so fast, pal. I want to keep this lucrative for myself. You got it. So when you use a co-working space, does that also solve the problem of finding patients? I mean, do you do the marketing for them or is this something they're supposed to go out and uh, ambulance chase on their own? Actually, version business plan 1.0 was let's put up rooms and take on a two-sided marketplace, two-sided being the patient and the doctor. My early stage investors said, hold on, this is a bit risky for us. So I came back to them and said, well, listen, what if we don't have to put up the brick and mortar and I go use a Airbnb type model and rent from already established facilities? So this is a great, here's your initial capital. And they didn't realize I'd keep sucking <laughs> rounds of capital after that to keep the wheel turning. But long story short is we were taking on a three-sided marketplace at one point, including the facility we had to go acquire, which became an impossible task. So thankfully, we've now put up the facility and we only back to a two-sided marketplace. And we've certainly sold for the doctor element. Patient, we've sold for in certain disciplines. So things like dermatology and psychiatry, mental health, general practice. There's a lot of online searches. There's a lot of shopping around for doctors. You know, it's, it's not a life or death situation in most instances. And we've had a lot of success in acquiring new business through digital and related channels. When it comes to more complex problems, such as, you know, reconstructive surgery or plastic surgery, cancer surgery, all those things that I'm really worried about my life now, people are far more selective with the doctor they're choosing. And it's been more of a struggle to solve for patients in those instances. That said, we have a lot of what's called ROWPS doctors, doctors who work in the public sector primarily and a few hours a week in the private sector. And they're incredibly well-trained and the best globally. You know, they see so much pathology in our, our third world context. So what we're trying to do there is appeal to the academic prevalence of these part-time public-private doctors to try create more reputation through our practitioners and get through that final hurdle. Well, it's interesting that you consider it like a two-sided marketplace because at first, when you were describing it, I pictured it as literally being, like we say, an office share 
for doctors, which means they basically come into it with their own customers, their own patients, and they just needed a place to practice. But in essence, it sounds like in your version 1.0, whatever version you're on right now, 1.5, you're actually building a practice. You're finding the patients. So we have different types of doctors. We have the straight out of medical school who needs a practice built for them. They need patients. We then have retiring senior doctors who don't want to invest in a new practice. They actually want to decrease the hours. They come with a patient base. And then we have kind of in the middle guys who have a part-time patient base but could use some growth. So in certain instances, you're right, they do come. But a lot of the underdogs, so to speak, rely on us, and we need to help them along. That makes sense. Okay, so you've done version whatever you're on now, where you basically have built your first office, invested the millions of rand to get up and going. Where do you go from here? So coming back to that public-private dynamic, we need to follow the tertiary hospitals and medical schools in our country. So we are putting up our second facility in the next sort of three months at the next medical school location within our more proximal geography in the Western Cape. And thereafter, we'll follow the more or less 10 medical schools across South Africa where you have high density and a lot of doctors who this is applicable to. So you've worked out the economic model for these that you can pay back the investment in a reasonable amount of time and it's all kind of working beautifully now that you're expanding? <laughs> I'm probably the best Google Sheets and Excel doctor you've ever spoken to thanks to reworking and working <laughs> the model, yeah. Well, that's great. So everything is wonderful, right, Jason? I mean, uh, you can stay on here with me and mentor the next person. So no, Mark, that ties into my question, I think, for you. So should I maybe jump in to summarize it? <laughs> yes, please. What's, what's up? Okay, so I've left the business now from a day-to-day -day level, sort of two months ago, and there was a phased approach to leaving the business. So about a year ago, coming out of COVID, things were a lot darker than they were now. But one man's trash is another man's treasure. Uh, one of the large corporates in our country went into liquidation, and there was suddenly a whole bunch of senior executives, who some of which were investors of mine, had some time on their hands. So I appealed to them to come in and assist me. And someone in particular came in initially for three months, then it became six months, and it ended up being a year. But I was incredibly privileged to be so closely mentored by this guy. And I mean, it really did transform me as an individual. So initially, I went through a phase of, I think, a little bit reading your situation with Reed, perhaps, you know, handing over to somebody more equipped. And there was all the self-doubt topics and thinking, you know, have I done what's best for the business, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then as I got mentored, I became more comfortable with one, I think, being able to regain control, but simultaneously no longer being so interested to do so. Other things were on the horizon. I'm still young. I didn't see it as a lifetime project, I guess. And I think there's three parts to the, my, my question. First of all, sort of the guilt of leaving your baby and how you should feel with that. Part two would be how then do you still add value as a board member and shareholder or whatever you might continue to be? And then finally, where do you go next? You've had this crazy, I've been an owner, I've been a startup founder. It's, it's a very special type of experience. And I've gone into a corporate now, which has its, its positives, but I'm just trying to work out where to go next and how to think. It's sort of an emotional, social, philosophical question I think I have for you rather than a business one. Well, first of all, congratulations to you, Jason. I mean, uh, number one, congratulations from actually taking a crazy idea 
and going through the process of making it real, iterating it from that first Airbnb-style disaster into something which feels like it's a repeatable, scalable model. So congratulations. So I think one of the best things you'll potentially have, no matter what happens, is this feeling that I built that. And whatever it becomes, you still have some claim the same way you do. I have three young kids, not so young anymore. Now they're on their 20s. So my ability to influence their direction is down to about zero at this point. But I still plan to take all kinds of credit for anything amazing that they actually accomplish in the future. And certainly the same thing goes for business. So congratulations on that. And also, I think it's kind of interesting that you've actually managed to get out. And you can tell this by the way I phrase that, that I put this a positive spin on it. I think a lot of people feel that they're indispensable or that it's theirs. It's theirs to do what they want with it. And that leads in all kinds of different directions. But let's talk about some of the specific things you brought up. And our mileage may vary because I did not feel a tremendous amount of guilt when I left, or it certainly is not the emotion that I would have immediately thought of. Because for me, it became evident that I wasn't very good at it anymore. That as the company got bigger, the challenges that were there were very, very different ones than the ones that I had been used to solving in those first five or six years. Startup problems are very different than repeating and scaling problems. In combination with the fact that I wasn't very good at it, the other reality is I didn't like it that much. I, of course, like you, I mean, loved this company. You know, it was my baby. And of course I loved it. And I wanted to right its wrongs and fight its battles and do anything I could to make it successful. But at the same time, I'd be driving home from work and kind of realizing that I just don't have that same feeling of fulfillment that I used to have. And that there were people working there, this is at Netflix now, you know, six, seven years in, who are unbelievably good. The person who came in right after I left to run operations was the person who had just stepped down as the postmaster general in the United States, the person who run the entire United States Postal Service. The ability to handle complexity that's just impossible to me to even envision. And this person would want to work at Netflix. And so what could I possibly add? So it was this really kind of interesting combination. And it made me realize, wow, I don't have to do this if I don't want to. That the things that I've realized that I'm good at and that I love is actually early stage companies. And that it's a lucky man indeed who can get to spend his days doing the things they love and they're good at. And for me, that was always early stage companies. So leaving was a really interesting process. And then I'll come back to the add value part because the where next one was especially interesting. You know, I live right near Silicon Valley, but essentially Silicon Valley proper. And this is a company town. Pretty much everyone you know is in the startup world, is in tech. I know a lot of people, hundreds and hundreds of people who've had enough economic success that they would never need to work again. But it was really interesting because most of them are still working. And so when I was leaving Netflix, I was very, very careful not to say things like, I'm retired or I'm going to stop. For me, it was always, I'm going to take some time off because I, quite frankly, didn't know when I left what was next. I mean, on one hand, I was pretty tired and pretty burned. And so I was ready to chill for a while. 
But I withstood for a long time that pull of doing another startup. And largely because for me, I realized I had all these other interests. That all these are the things I wanted to go deep into. Then I made a lot of missteps and had to course correct a bunch, but ultimately figured out that for me, the where next was more or less doing what I'm doing now or a version of what I'm doing now, which is kind of that I could get my fix, my ability to stay in the startup game without having to be fully in by basically helping other people. Maybe not like yourself, who's kind of also trying to get out, but people trying to get in and saying, what can I do to help them and get a chance to sit around the table with really smart people and solve really cool problems, but not have to stay there all night working on it. So, my quick advice is don't worry about it in terms of the what next is going to find you. Listen, I know now you've got the bug. I can just tell, by the way, you are talking about it. And what is I know going to happen, unless you actively fight it, is you're going to be someplace and you're going to see some other flaw in the healthcare system because might be two or three. And rather than being one of those guys who complains about it, I suspect you're going to be one of those guys who says, why can't we do this? And you'll resist and you'll try and get some of the other investor friends interested in doing something. And then eventually you'll go, ah, screw it. And then, uh, and then you'll be back in it again. Mark, to push you on that point though, where I've moved to, there's a lot of cash flow and money and profit to solve problems. And it's a nice change from the very lean, frugal approach. <laughs> and I'm worried I'll miss I'll battle to go back to that, you know, every month could be your last mentality, as much as I love it. In other words, you're getting to like the cushy <laughs> lifestyle where you don't need to worry where your next paycheck is coming from. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, unfortunately, that's blatantly it, yeah. All I can say is, yeah, it might take you a while to become well-fed, enough so that you stop worrying about it. And it totally makes sense. Work in the corporate job, be able to leave at a reasonable hour every night, get a few weeks off where someone else deals with it. I get it. Listen, I hope you don't abandon us, meaning all the entrepreneurs entirely. It's hard to imagine you won't get pulled back Literally in. Literally this morning, somebody asked for advice on a postal contraceptive service, and I couldn't help but take the meeting. <laughs> Absolutely. And listen, I'm not sure whether I can tell you this is a positive or a negative, but I left Netflix. I spent about a year and a half saying yes to all kinds of bullshit. You know, would you be on an advisory board? Would you talk to me? Would you do this nonprofit? And my filter at the time was, is it a good idea or a bad idea? And if it was a good thing, I would say yes. And of course, then I ended up with all this good stuff that A, I really wasn't that into. And B, all of a sudden I go, my whole life is filled with ephemera now, with these little trivial little meetings, and I'm not doing anybody any good. And then I got incredibly lucky in that I actually moved out of the country for a year and a half with my family, which gave me this excuse to get out of everything, get the fresh start. And I came back and said, okay, now I have the fresh start. I'm not going to make this mistakes before and built this model, which is more mentoring, where I work with a small number of entrepreneurs very deeply because I figured this is my methadone. This is my non-addictive substitute that will keep me from being drawn into the startup game again. But, but then what were your choices on projects that you chose to do when you came back? Oh, how did I choose who to... Yeah, versus the clutter. Oh, that's a really interesting question. It was entirely about the entrepreneur. Entirely is too strong. 95% the entrepreneur, 5% the idea. What I really realized... I loved doing was helping make the entrepreneur more successful. 
to help the founder be successful. That making the company successful, yeah, that was a byproduct because that's what the founder was trying to do. But it was that coaching piece that I loved. That's what was fun for me. I had to pick people who I enjoyed spending time with, who I thought were coachable, who had that combination of incredible self-confidence, which you need to, since everyone's always saying that'll never work, coupled with this ability to actually listen and take in someone's opinion and someone who was fun, someone who I liked working with. So that's how I chose. Thank you. You have this incredibly unique combination, and I'll say a fairly rare one, which is you have the medical background, and now you have the entrepreneurial business background. So you should be able to find some very interesting ways to combine those things. And the last thing I'll say in terms of this what next piece is you absolutely can find ways to have your cake and eat it too, meaning that there are ways to structure your life in a way that gives you some economic security. It will narrow, you're right, the opportunities, but there are absolutely well-funded startups which actually do pay their early entrepreneurs, which if you were just out of university, I might say is probably not something that's going to get made available to you. But someone who actually, like you said, has the combination of skills and more importantly, a track record of having gone through it once, it's not unreasonable for you to actually raise money and use the money to actually pay yourself. One Michael Jordan is worth 20 journeyman players. That's why they pay people like that 20 times more than the next levels down because they do are so productive. Same with, and people talk about that here in terms of coding. That fantastic coder is not just 10% better than the next best person. He's 10 times better than the next best person. And that just is worth paying for. So how are you adding value now? Are you totally divorced from your baby? No, I exited on good terms and retained a large stake of my equity, or all my equity, which happens to be a fairly large stake of the company. But the one proviso is that I would stay on as a board member and director. And you know what? If things did go from strength to strength, the strategy morphed, I would very much maybe like to go back in a few years' time when there were new goals to achieve. So I'm a board member and I help out from time to time with strategy and things like that. And it's not off the radar that should things really get going, I would return. Oh, gosh, don't even hint that's a possibility to whoever you're recruiting in to be the current director or CEO, whatever you call it in South Africa. That the person goes, oh, we're going to hire a great person. And just when they get up to speed, that Jason guy, he's going to swoop in and take it away from me. I never saw it that way, but you make a good point. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. I'd be terrified of taking a job if I even had a hint. I go, oh, the founder, he's still on the board? Oh, he's still like involved in strategy? Tell me, just how strategic <laughs> is the strategy he contributes? Oh, and he's even thinking he might want to come back in in a few... Oh, okay, no <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So be careful. Be sensitive to how hard it will be to find someone amazing to take on that role. It's hard enough to begin with to find someone to come in as the second CEO of startup, no less having to worry about the old guy shooting everything down from his perch on high. So, so then do you say there is no future return? And uh, there's no hard feelings if you say so. Do you say that once you leave, it should be forever? Well, rules are for fools. So you never say never. But yeah, I think that you would be very successful if you never had to come back and step in. I mean, listen, it happens. 
But usually it doesn't happen purposefully. It happens inadvertently. In other words, all of a sudden something happens to the CEO. They have to leave or they die or there's some scandal. And then what happens is everyone looks around at the other board members and go, who is going to step in? And then uh, it's like a superhero movie. You're going the back, you're opening up the case and pulling out the old cape and uh, back you go into battle. But no, it's a little odd to design it. And in fact, it looks funny. Listen, don't get me wrong. There's huge value in having you on the board. It's just, in my opinion, recognizing that to find the right person, you have to give that person some latitude to run the company the way they want to run the company and that your job as a board member is strategic direction and hiring the right CEO, not second guessing the CEO, not helping the CEO. That's just my opinion. Maybe I'm overly sensitive to it. It's an interesting one, but it comes with trust. And granted, you, you hire somebody you trust, but sometimes they can be perfect, but it, actually giving them control and trusting their decisions and not double checking can be challenging. Yes, it is, Jason. I think you're right. It is trust. You hire well and you have to trust that person. And listen, if they're not doing a great job, well, put it this way. If you find that you're needed to go in and second guess decisions and change things and meddle, it's not a, a sustainable model. It's just a recognition that you did a bad job of hiring. I've never seen it that way, Mark. That was very enlightening. And I have to reflect on that. But um, <laughs> then how? I'm a little bit feeling like you're still contradicting from my understanding in terms of you saying you add value there, but you also shouldn't be there. So which one is it or how do you add value? Because there's the difference between strategic and tactical. And that's the difference. The board is there to set this direction. But the only lever they really have is to hire or fire the CEO, not to tell the CEO how to do what it is they've charged him with doing. So you might have this long two-day meeting, three-day meeting if you need it, as a board with the CEO and others on their team saying, what are we going to try and accomplish? Let's big strategic decision. Is it time to move into other countries? Big strategic decision, whether to do it or not. But once the board has made that decision, you guys should go off and play golf or hunt or whatever the hell you do with your spare time. Let her implement the strategy, make the decisions about how to do it. Hire the people who work for her to make it all happen. And if she comes to you and goes, hey, Jason, I have a question. What do you think? you're all in. But in my opinion, it's a very, very big line between the strategic objectives of the board and the tactical responsibilities of the team. And if I was the CEO, I would resent the board overly meddling. How often do you think then board meetings should be held? Because I know it's not uncommon to have annual board meetings in a large corporation, but that just would be unrealistic in this instance to have once a year meeting. You have annual public meetings. You'll have a quarterly meeting of the board of directors. I would call that a normal okay. rhythm. And it entirely depends on the maturity of the organization and how smoothly running it is and how frequently strategic direction has to change. Okay. But for example, on a brand new startup, it is not uncommon to have a meeting once a month. So a lot of the startups that I work with, they meet once a month and then, okay, we're feeling a little more comfortable. We're going to go to every six weeks. Okay. Things are still pretty good. We're going to quarterly. I don't have any that are any less frequently than quarterly. Okay, got you. Just coming back into how to add value though. So you're saying just wait for them to ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can volunteer. Okay. If you have a great relationship with this person, goes, how can I help you? What would you like me to wait in on? Listen, be careful of me speaking with great authority about something I don't know well. Every situation is differently. 
I'm giving you the specifics about, in general, the relationship between a board and board members and the executive team. In an early stage company, maybe it's blurred, maybe because of your relationship, it's blurred, maybe because the maturity of the person who's clearly not yet ready to totally grasp the reins, it's blurred. But yes, a very healthy relationship would be not that you ignore the company. One of the companies right now, which I'm working with, which is struggling some, the CEO gives us weekly reports, just a quick three paragraphs, because we're at a critical time. Every week counts, Mm. but we're not going in and saying, let me go on that sales call with you. No, either they can handle it or they can't handle it. If they can't, we need to get someone else who can handle it. Gotcha. I can tell this is tough love for you, Jason. I know you want to get in there and just hold on to the reins, but hey, man, you're either in or you're out, you know? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I'll even be even harsher than that. The worst thing, again, temper this with, I don't know the details. The worst thing is the founder who won't get out of the way. No, I mean, I saw that totally now from earlier in your call. I never saw it that way prior to that. But it's not a young CEO. It's a very senior lady who's run similar models in the UK. It's just my controlling streak. (laughs) It is, and it's a terrible thing. You'll drive away a competent person. You'll muddle things. People who work for her won't be clear where to take direction from. They'll question her decisions because they're scared it's going to get overruled. It's awful. I have another company which is trying to recruit a new CEO, and this person is feeling so conservative because they were so burned at the last company where they came in. The old CEO was promising, I'm retiring, I'm getting out of the way, and then never really retired, never really got out of the way, couldn't let go. And it was a shit show. So don't be that guy. I hear you. Make a decision in or out, and then if you're going to be a board member, be a great board member. If you're going to stay CEO, be a great CEO. Don't be half and half. Well, boy, this went in an interesting direction because I can tell now exactly what it is you're struggling with. No, thanks, Mark. Yeah, there's certainly some new perspectives from this call that I'll have to go through. I mean, I'm sure she's going to see a different person from tomorrow. <laughs> and listen, the other thing is you can certainly be a partner to her and you can ask her what she wants. If she has a lot of maturity, she'll tell you. She goes, no, chill. You know, what I think it is, is sometimes you're also hyper-sensitive to critique. So you hear one bad thing of feedback, you know, a booking came in late, a WhatsApp wasn't responded to, and you tend to just like totally overreact, like everything's going to the shitter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's very true too. It's part of your used to being a founder where everything's can go wrong and you need to be constantly jumping on things. But what you can do is coach this person that they're maybe not reactive enough, but listen, they've got it. You screwed up too. You got a lot of stuff wrong and it's okay. You got stronger and you got better for it. You can help this person be stronger and better too. But I think in my opinion, it's kind of for the most part, letting her do her job. No, thank you, Mark. That's, that's been enlightening. You're welcome, Jason. This was actually fantastic. So here's the deal. You've got to get back in touch with me one way or another in about six months because I want to hear what I'll say is you're not alone. I think everyone who's been a, a CEO where you have to be watching everything and you're always nervous it's going to screw up and you're always scared this deal is the last one you're going to see. And it's a very important maturation of recognizing I need mm. to let go. I have a capable person. I did a great job. I hired well. I put the trust in them. I'm going to let her mm. do her job. And that's scalable. That's repeatable. Got you. Well, I'm not going back. So our jerky is Biltong. So I hope to send you Biltong in six months and chat further. <laughs> it sounds like a deal. Well, thanks, Jason, for the call. Even though Jason's time running his company is over, he still has a lot of things to think about as he heads into the future. For one, he has to figure out how he can help his company as a board member, which is an art in and of itself. Then there's the more soul-searching aspect, 
what does he want to do next? With one successful startup under his belt, Jason's certainly in a position to get back into the entrepreneurial game if he so chooses. I have a hunch that we'll see him with another startup before too long, but that's up to him to decide. But I will catch up with him in a few months or so to see what he's up to. Well, that's all for today. And thanks to my guests for entrusting their business to me for a little while. I look forward to hearing back from them in a few months to see if my advice helped. In the meantime, if you want to be a guest on That Will Never Work, I've made it really easy. Just go to markrandolph.com forward slash guest. Fill out the form and leave a voice message right there on the site. While you're there, sign up to get my weekly entrepreneurial advice delivered right to your inbox. Or connect with me on Twitter at mbrandolph or on Instagram at that will never work. Or my newest attempt at denying my age on TikTok, where I promise you won't ever find me dancing without a shirt on. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to smash that like button and leave me a review at Apple Podcasts. I'll see you next time.